0: About 10 years ago, I received a phone call from a friend who's about 20 years older than me uh, that uh, basically said, hey, like, we're looking for some younger people to come serve on our missions board. Would you be interested uh, in doing so? And yeah, you know, I got a big heart for missions, thought that'd be great. Uh, and so I joined the board, and I got to tell you, the first meeting where we had everybody all together, we had these missionaries who are respected like crazy in the room i 'd heard of the great stuff that God had been doing through them, and then, then we had the, the the board in the room and a bunch of people who loved Jesus, and you know I was so excited for this, and then like all of a sudden, like as soon as the meeting started, like the gloves came off, you know, and like there was like, "Well, you told us this, no, you told us this, and I was just like oh my goodness, what did I step in the middle of here? Uh, And and it was this this kind of this this frank introduction where I recognized, just because you've got good, godly people in the room doesn't mean that things always go smoothly. And, And in the middle of this, I realized that one of the biggest problems we were dealing with in the organization is that we had almost no face time with each other. By FaceTime, I don't mean the, the, the iPhone app. That wasn't invented yet back then, or at least wasn't any good back then. What I mean is that we had people serving on the other side of the world, and the only chance we had to interact with them was via email. And so when decisions would be made, sometimes a year or two ago, before we would see them face-to-face, they'd receive an email and say, Wait a second, why was that decision made? Was it, did I do something that, to, to cause that decision to be made? And when we'd receive word back from them, they'd be, wait a second, what, what did we do? How come they're so upset about this? I don't understand why everybody's so upset. And what we realized is that if we're going to serve in this way, we've got to find a way to make up for the time that we've had apart from each other. Because the further apart you are physically, the further apart you tend to get in relationship as well. Church. We have been apart from many people in our culture now since last March or April. And we've seen the division that it's caused, correct? We've seen how the divisiveness in our country has only gotten worse and deeper. We've seen it in churches too, where this season has been a tough season for churches because. We can't just get everybody all together the way that we could. We can now, but we couldn't for such a long time. The reality is is that as we navigate this extremely polarized and politicized culture, it's going to take great leadership to overcome the distance that has grown in our culture. It'll take great leadership from our elders, from our staff, from our ministry leaders, and from our volunteers, and from all of you. And so today we're going to talk about church leadership, and on the surface, there's nothing that's all that attractive about that. Acts 15 is probably nobody in the world's favorite passage of Scripture, but it's vitally important. And I love the book of Acts, and this is not my favorite passage in the book of Acts by any means, but at the same time, I want to suggest to you that today is important, and here's why. Because if we're going to see the type of stories continue in our lives like they did in the book of Acts, then it requires us coming together. It requires us working together. And if you're going to fulfill the type of leadership roles that God has for you in your job, you've got to teach people to come together and to work together. And if you are going to lead your families effectively, it means that you are going to have to work out how to come together as a family, because yes, even families don't see eye to eye all the time. Some of you are like, some of the time it'd be nice though. <laughs> and so that's why today is so important. Because we've got to come together and follow Jesus, whether it be in church Whether it be in our workplaces, whether it be in our families, it is vitally important. And so here's what I want to suggest to you today as we dive into Acts 14 and 14, is that overcoming church conflict and any conflict, whether it be in your family or whether it be in your workplaces or your neighborhoods, overcoming conflict in general requires courageous Christ-like leadership, courageous Christ like leadership. So here's what's happening in the text. The gospel has been spreading. As the gospel is spreading, it's spreading not only to people who were Jewish people, but also to Gentile people. Not only that, but the church is no longer just in Jerusalem. It's now spreading out from Acts 8 on. It spreads out. And as it spreads out, they have difficulty with communication, keeping everybody on the same page. They're living in a pre-Facetime, they're living in a pre-Zoom, they're living in a pre... You can't even Zoom somewhere in your car, let alone on your computer, right? And so it says that Paul and Barnabas have been in Antioch, and the gospel's been spreading like crazy, but the Gentile expansion is what's getting the attention. And so here, the tail end of Acts 14, verse 26, it says, from there... They meeting Paul and Barnabas sailed back to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for their work they had now completed after they arrived and gathered the church together they reported everything God had done with them and he had opened that he had opened the door of the faith to the Gentiles and so there's rejoicing here in the expanding work of God but as the work of God expands we also see that there's some negatives that come along with it because let's face it, change is tough, isn't it? Change is difficult. The older we get, the tougher it gets. I know that, that I'm getting to that point where like the idea of upgrading a phone is like, what's wrong with this one? I'm thinking about like downgrading, like a flip phone. Has anybody got a flip phone back here? Like, give me one of those razors. That looks pretty good to me about this point. So here's what happens. 15, chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, meaning the people in the church. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, if you can imagine with me, fellas, you can probably identify better than you can with me and the ladies on this one. If you, you know, were to baptize someone and to come up out of the water, let's say you're the one being baptized... As a a middle-aged man, you come up out of the waters, congratulations, welcome to the family of God, there's just one more thing we need to do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that could make conversion a little difficult. Now at the heart of the issue here, I know it's laughable for us, but when we look back, this had been their custom, this had been in their law, it's here in the Old Testament for like almost 2,000 years. And now they're saying, "Wait, these people, they're, they're coming to the faith like, do they have to be Jews first before they become Christians? Do they have to be circumcised?" I mean, that'd be an interesting greeting job at the door. We just just need to check to make sure. You know, anybody want to No, nobody can volunteer for that job, trust me. Okay? All right, we got a lot of humor out of the way now. Forgive me. It's right there in the text, though, I got to say it. So verse 2 After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others who were appointed to go up with the apostles and elders to Jerusalem about this issue. They said, we need our elders to step in and make a decision here. This is something that has huge ramifications for the church and its expansion." Verse 3, when they had sent it on their way, when they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing their detail, the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. Well, of course it would. The Samarians would have been considered a half-breed type of people to the Jewish people. That's literally what they were called. They were half-Jewish. And so they would have seen this as great. We're tearing down some of the walls. that's keeping people from coming to Jesus. That doesn't mean that everybody would have had that perspective, though. Verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, which not all Pharisees were bad people, just most of them, but in this case, these were good people. Um, We see that in in John, the third chapter, that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he winds up being the guy who takes care of Jesus' body after Jesus died. So, so the Pharisees were just a religious group within Judaism here, and so there would have been Christians who had that Pharisee side uh, to them still, uh, and they were still working out what that looked like. So anyway, this guy, some of them who stood up, uh, who were Pharisees, they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And again, what it says here is conflict often happens when people have been apart. When people have been apart, when new things happen, when we don't know the full story. That's when the conflict creeps in, when we don't know what somebody else has been through, when we don't know what somebody else has experienced. Oftentimes, we, especially in our culture, we expect the worst instead of expect the best, don't we? We get afraid. I mean, we get afraid when somebody comes home. Uh, let's say, uh, you know, your husband or wife comes home a little bit later than normal. You start thinking, like, well, did they get in a car wreck? Are they okay? You don't stop thinking, well, did they get in a good conversation with somebody? That's probably just it. Our minds, our human nature tends to get us in those places. Conflict happens when we're apart. So here we see that all the apostles and elders gathered to consider this matter. Verse 7, it says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, if you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that, you that, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So the first thing that we see here." is that courageous Christ-like leadership upholds the love of God for all people. When we look at it and see that He made no distinction between us and them, they're thinking about the distinction of circumcision, because that's literally what circumcision was, was, was to be, was to be a sign of being set apart from everybody else. And what, what Peter is saying here is that God made no distinction because He's cleansed their hearts. And when we start thinking about conflict, often what happens is a defense mechanism and our mind kicks in where we try to look down upon somebody else who views things differently than us. Or whenever we get defensive about the expanse of the Gospel, oftentimes we think of ourselves as more valuable than somebody else. And the reality is, What we see in this text is we need Christian people in our world to step up and to declare that God's love is the same for all people. And that is that it is unconditional for all people. So we uphold the love of God just as Peter did. Isn't it great to celebrate the good things that Peter did too? (laughs) So oftentimes we look down on Peter. The reality is, is he... He, you know, I'm a bigger knucklehead than Peter was. Um, and, um, you know, man, you know, what a bold distinction to say, hey, all people are created in the image of God. Christ died for all. He loves them just as much as he loved us. He died for them just as much as for them as he did for us. There's plenty of love in God's heart to go around for everybody. And praise God for that. Verse 10. Peter then says, now then, why are you trying to test God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither uh, our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? He brings a good point. Like, we weren't even able to uphold the law. How do you think Gentiles are going to be able to uphold it? Christ is the only one who was able to uphold it, and he fulfilled it. Why are we trying to, to put this on other people as well? On the contrary, he says, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the same way that they are. The law isn't saving anybody, it's Jesus that saves people. I wonder how many boundaries we put on people's lives because of the decision that they're making. Do you believe the grace of God is for all? you think the grace of God is for people regardless of what country they were raised in, regardless of what color of skin they are, regardless of, of sexual orientation and everything else? Like what boundaries are we putting on the grace of God? Because the reality is, is that we all need saved from our sin through Jesus Christ. We cannot work our way to God. And so let's put the Jesus part first. Rather than trying to tell people how to live in our culture, let's, let's, let's put the Jesus part first and let them know that they are loved. And then every other aspect of obedience comes as a response to love, as opposed to a precondition to love. There are no preconditions to God's love. And so it says in verse 12, the whole assembly became silent. Sometimes the church gets loud when the Spirit is moving. Sometimes the church gets silent when the church is moving. This is a time where it got silent because they are being humbled so the whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Saul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers, this is James the brother of Jesus, by the way. James responded, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which just means Simon, had reported first how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And, and the words of the prophets agree." With this, as it is written, after these things I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles, even the Gentiles, who would have thought it, who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. He's quoting from Amos 9 and Isaiah 45. And so what we see here is that courageous Christ-like leadership centers every decision on God's work and the leading of the Holy Spirit. We see that God's Word here is something that they had been very committed to, but they were being stretched in their understanding of God's Word. The reality is, is that none of us knows God's Word completely. I would love to tell you, yeah, I know every bit of God's Word. The reality is, that'd be a lie. Uh, As I've grown in my faith, there are aspects of the faith that have come out to me that, that, that I've realized that as I read Scripture, that, oh, I got that wrong. I might want to go back and change a few sermons if I could. And this is what happens here. They saw the work of the Holy Spirit, and they went back to Scripture and realized that this was God's promise all along. God's Word hasn't changed It's just that sometimes we miss out on God's Word. Sometimes we read right over some of the parts that should be so clear. And that's why I think Christians can be very divided in America. We tend to huddle, you know, birds of a feather flock together and all that. And I love the fact that our church is, is a melting pot of different backgrounds and different beliefs. Because sometimes, you know, some of our traditions can miss out completely on something that's so clear in Scripture. But another tradition gets it. But they're missing out on something else that these people get. And when we come together, we can become more like Christ. And That's a beautiful thing. So we center every decision as courageous Christ-like leaders, we should center every decision on God's Word and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Not, well, what does culture think about this? Or, or you know, how would this play out? And, and that, that's what Washington, D.C. does. We say, no, it's God's Word. We've got to do it graciously. We've got to do it in, with great love. But we've got to uphold the Word of God. It says in verse 19, Therefore, this is James again, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. Amen to that. We shouldn't make it hard for people to come to Jesus, should we? it says, but instead we should try write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. Basically, those were all like, used in like, the pagan worship. It's, it's weird, like, how are these four things pulled out? Well, it's, it's used in the pagan worship circles. And he's saying, no, you're worshiping Jesus now, not the pagan gods. So you shouldn't do these things anymore. So we see here that courageous Christ-like leadership doesn't make it difficult for people to come to Jesus. Just wonder, is, is there a place in my life, is there a place in your life, is there a place in your church where we're making it difficult to come to Jesus? Is there a place where we're standing in the way, the movement of God? Is there a way that Christians in our culture are making it difficult for others to come to Jesus? That's why we've got to be so careful in this, in this whole cultural war thing that we have going on in America that's just so brutal. The more important than anything else, that people know they can come to Jesus anytime, anywhere, any place. And so they wrote some letters explaining this decision, and they chose four people: Paul and Barnabas, Judas, Barsabbas, and Silas to go. And so, so since they went off, uh, they were sent off and went down to Antioch, and after they gathered the assembly, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also among the prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. Did you hear that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen to that, huh? We like those long sermons, don't we? Uh huh. It's right there in the Bible. What can I say? Oh, man, you know, this is it. You know, what's a long message to them? I don't know. But hey, it's right there. Hey, that's, that's just all good. Uh, I'll continue on here. Uh, but I had to have a little fun with that, of course. But here we see that God works through courageous Christ-like leadership to strengthen and encourage the church. And I want to remind you of that because some of you are in difficult places in your family You're in difficult places in your workplace. You're in difficult places uh, in in, in church circles where you're in the midst of the conflict right now. And you're asking the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to be courageous and Christ-like in an environment that might not be rewarding? In an environment that might not be reciprocated to you? And what I see in this text and in the rest of this bigger text is that yes, it is absolutely worth it to be courageous and Christ-like when you are called upon to lead. And whether you see that vindication or that reward for it the next day, the next year, the next month, or not until Christ returns, I promise you that you will be rewarded for being courageous and Christ-like. It is worth it. Let me just give you some keys as we close today. If we want to be practicing courageous Christ-like leadership, what does it take? First, we see in this text the value of face-to-face, getting people together face-to-face. Now, again, we've had a huge challenge with that with COVID. We've seen a lot of lives lost. We've seen, you know, variants going crazy and everything else. Like, we don't know exactly what this is going to bring to us, but we still recognize the value in saying we need to come together face-to-face whenever we can picking up the phone is 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 great you know zooming in our families that's great those are all great things that we have in today's world but nothing beats face-to-face people ask about the future of online church well, I think it's a great entryway into our community. It's a great outreach to be able to share some of the things that our church is doing. It's great if you're traveling to be able to tune into the service, although not if you're driving. Please don't do that. Please just listen to the sermon later, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to put you to sleep while you're driving. That's the biggest thing. So, it's, but but like at the end of the day, there's nothing that replaces face-to-face. That's why it's so important to be here every week possible, to make it that priority to be here to be a part of the family. Secondly, assume the best intentions in other people. Now, that's not always easy. And I, I want to always throw out a disclaimer. If there's someone that has like, physically, uh, emotionally, uh, or verbally, or spiritually abused you, then you should not assume the best intentions in them. Because that winds up being more uh, of, of a victim being abused than it does being Christ-like. Okay, but at the same time, when we have situations, when we have people um, that that are trustworthy, that are good people, we have to stop. And instead of assuming the worst intentions, well, they just said that to get under my skin. They just said that to make me mad. We need to assume. No, 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 no. Like they're a good person. I know them better than that. I might not have heard that right. I should probably go to them and talk to them about that. But I'm going to assume they had the best intentions in mind until I hear otherwise. We need to give leaders and we need to give people the benefit of the doubt when it comes to this. Assume the best intentions and then next, assume that tough conversations and conflict are important for health. Conflict isn't always mean war. Conflict can simply mean a difference of opinion. It can simply mean we're not hearing each other yet. And the idea that like, you know, I know like some people say, well, yeah, you know, I just love to have one of those marriages where people never fight and anything else. No, he, no, no, no. Like you need to have good, frank conversations in marriage. It doesn't always have to be a blowout, scream and fight. But you need to say, hey, that hurt me when you said that. Yeah, I didn't appreciate that. Can, can we work on this? Uh, We need to say, I'm sorry, I I shouldn't have said that to you. I shouldn't have done that. And the same thing's true in in businesses uh, and in the church and in our neighborhoods with friends. Tough conversations are important for health because otherwise we're just glossing over the cancer that could be eating away those relationships. We need to have some Italians in the room to teach us. Conflict is not always bad. It can be a way of life that's healthy, not a lot of Italians, just a couple, that's plenty, (laughs) that's enough. (laughs) Next, be patient and willing to listen. So often we just want to say our piece and be done, but if we're going to be loving leaders who courageously share Christ, sometimes the most courageous and Christ-like thing that we need to do is shut our mouths and listen. The reality is is we're not Christ. We're Christ-like. We are not perfect. We need to be willing to listen to people. Even Jesus describes Himself, His heart, as gentle and lowly in heart. If Jesus can be gentle and lowly, then we should be too. Who is it that you need to hear out? Who is it that you need to listen to? It's not that you're agreeing with them. It's that you're simply loving them. In our culture today, loving people is, Requires listening to them. It always has, but it's especially true today. You don't have to agree with them. You know, at the end, if somebody says something that you don't agree with, you can simply say, Thank you for sharing that with me. (laughs) You don't have to fight them. You don't have to argue with them. Sometimes you have to have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to know, I'm going to keep my mouth shut on this one because it ain't going anywhere. But love them by listening. And finally, recognize Christ is present in the toughest moments. You know that whole um, Matthew eighteen quote where we get where two or three or you know two or more are gathered. Jesus says, "There I am with them." We use that in the middle of like worship services. Ah, Jesus is here in the presence today, and things like that, which which I believe is theologically true. But but that passage is actually about conflict. That passage is actually about when two or three people are getting together to hash out something that's happened relationally. And I don't know about you, but like, there's been a lot of those conversations I've been in on, and I couldn't feel Jesus' presence anywhere in the middle of that conversation. felt like Satan was present. I don't know about Jesus, right? Jesus, though, is reminding us of his presence when we most need to be reminded of his presence, when we can't feel him, when things are a little hot under the collar, and saying, if you're working together to work things out for me, I promise you, I'll be there in your midst. I promise you, I'll be there to work together for good. Two words today that I just want to share with you in closing. And those two words are trust and trustworthiness. Trust and trustworthiness. We need to be willing to trust our biblical leaders. And our biblical leaders must strive for trustworthiness in every area of their lives. And we can do this because we look to the example of Jesus who trusted in His heavenly Father even when it took Him to the cross, trusting in God to raise Him from the dead, which He did. And we also look to Jesus who was the most trustworthy example, who even the greatest sinners were trusted. He was trustworthy towards them in bringing healing and redemption. And we can look to Jesus, as Hebrews says, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as a result, we can lay down our lives as well. Jesus shows us that true leadership isn't about power, but true leadership is about laying down our lives for others. Church, that's the type of leaders that Jesus has called us to be in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and in our church. But it's the type of leader he was and still is today. And for that, we can rejoice. Let's pray. God, thank you for this decision that the early church made to see your love for each and every person, no matter what their background no matter what their nationality, the color of their skin, that You love every person unconditionally and that we can respond to Your grace. Thank You, Lord, that we don't have to earn our salvation. Thank You that You work in us to bring us to Your grace, to save us by Your grace. Thank You, Lord, that each and every one of us are created in Your image, that we bear your image. Lord, help us to be courageous and Christ-like. Lord, whether we're leading our family, our friends, our workers, our church, may we be courageous in the most Christ-like way. May we know, Jesus, that you laid down your life for others and trusted your heavenly Father and that we can do the same and that when we do the same, But there is great rejoicing because many more people will come to Christ as the result of Christ-like leadership. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.